If I say the date July 20th, 1969, what does that mean to you? What if we show a picture? That might help. July 20th, 1969. That's right. That's the day that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took off from not far from here, and they landed on the moon. They were on a vehicle called the Eagle, and they lived, they landed on a portion of the lunar surface that was called the Sea of Tranquility. It was a, one of the flattest spots that they could find on the entire moon in the area that they were able to land. They actually landed at 4.17 p.m., and it wasn't until a few hours later that they walked on the moon. When they landed, they sent back, what, Houston, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. It wasn't until 10.56 p.m. that they were given the green light to open the doors and to step out onto the surface of the moon. Neil Armstrong opened the hatch and set foot on the moon and gave that statement that all of us have heard and we all still remember. That's one small step for men. What's the next part? One giant leap for mankind. And they walked around. I actually didn't even know this. Um, they walked around for almost two hours on the surface of the moon. First time ever, this epic moment in history. And if you share the view of the earth that you have from the moon, it's just absolutely spectacular. And that's one of the things that they would talk about was just what it was like to stand on the moon and to look out and see the earth just like we have seen the moon almost every day of our lives. And it changed their entire view that, that for that moment, the conflicts on earth, all the things that you fight over, the boundaries between countries, all these different things that are so significant from a certain point of view, once they stepped out and they had a different view, seemed so insignificant in the moment. Especially the ideas of traffic and work and responsibilities. It all just kind of washed away. Buzz Aldrin actually had to um, go through significant counseling, that's public record, that he had emotional breakdowns of disillusionment after trying to figure out how to live a normal life after living such a grand life of physically walking, jumping, hopping, playing golf on the moon. You know, he could never drive the same. You know, and uh, just all these different perspectives. Thank you, that one person understood that. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure it was a very far drive. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.15, I have seen everything in my days of vanity, in my days of meaningless. Uh, we're not going to go through, in case you're wondering, the entire book of Ecclesiastes, because the reality is chapter 7 and chapter 3 would basically be the exact same message. It's he almost repeats himself, which does not speak well to his psyche at the time that he's going through these times of repetition. Today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3, but Ecclesiastes 7 just kind of sums up everything. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. He had tried it all. You've heard me say that so many different times. Everything that life had to offer, from fame to wealth to women to fancy chariots and big horses and whatever was you know, popular at the time, he tried it. But Solomon also has these moments where kind of like a spiritual astronaut, he lifts above just the under the sun and he sees from a different perspective. And that's what we're going to look at today. If you're taking notes, we're going to see things from 
a spiritual point of view. I've got two mounts that we're going to climb today. They're both in your notes. One's towards the bottom. You can go ahead and fill this in. We've got a view from Mount Skeptical, and we have a view from Mount Spiritual. And we're going to see the two different perspectives that he brings to us today. One of my favorite hikes for Angie and I to go on all of California is called Top of the World. Um, this is a picture of Angie and I standing up there. And if you can see all the trees, all the other mountains, everything is below you at this point. Um, it's on the Arnold Rim Trail. You, they've got the sign there for Top of the World. What's so great about it is when you go up there and you stand on the rocks, and everything around you is underneath you. This is the Stanulus Mountains outside of Sacramento in Calaveras County, the church where Angie and I were first called to after my seminary graduation. But we love this hike. And you can go up there and just stand, and you feel like you're on top of the world. All the other mountains, all the other trees are underneath you at that point. And it just gives you such a different point of view. It gives you a different perspective. My hope and prayer for all of us today is that that's what these verses will do. They're going to give us both perspectives. We're going to ask some of the hard questions today that many people ask, that you've probably asked. I know that I have, but we're also going to see some answers today. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your phone, these kind of teachings is kind of helpful to keep the text in front of you. And we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to go back to verse 12. Solomon writes, I know that nothing is better for them, that is, all of mankind, than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. We read this verse last week, and I wanted to start here this week. I know that when whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken down from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been, that which is to be already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. and the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every word. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God test them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so does the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity, all is meaningless. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animals, which goes down to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own words, for that is his heritage, for who can bring to him to see what will happen after him. All right. So we've got this like wrestling match happening. He's trying to almost like, he's arguing with himself. He's arguing with God. He's talking about what he observes. He's talking about what he's experiencing. We have this huge wrestling match. And I know that I've been through that. I know there's been times in my life where I have been wrestling with God. 
um, one of my joys of journaling this year has been the ability to go back and reference that and see how there's different moments that I wrestle with God. And uh, I've even shared with some friends just how what I write in the beginning of my journal and that I spend time in the Word and what I write at the end, how even on a single page, I'll be wrestling with God because I am not afraid to take my questions to God. I'm not afraid to tell God areas that I'm struggling with. And so I see that wrestling match just like we see here in Scripture. If you look at a couple of these phrases, you see this struggle pretty uh, clearly. Verse 12, he begins by saying, I know, as well as in verse 14, he says, I know. But also in both of these sentences, God is mentioned. So he's wrestling with what he knows and what God does and who God is. He's sort of trying to communicate this all from verses 9, 10, and 11 which we covered a lot more last week, and you can find that as well. He says, I know, I know these things. But then in verse 16, he says, I saw. This is his observation. I see animals. I see that the animals, they breathe the same air that we do. The same things happen to their body when they decay. I see these same things. In verse 17, he says, I said in my heart. Now he's internalizing this. He's wrestling with this. Verse 18, again, his thoughts, I said in my heart, and then verse 22, again, so I perceived. Do you see the wrestling here? He's mentioning God. He's talking about what he sees. He's speaking to himself. There's this whole place of trying to understand what exactly, exactly is happening. At this point, we, we can easily see that Solomon is a pessimist. You know, whenever I meet pessimists, you know what their answer many times is that I like, kind of like challenge them on that? I'm not a pessimist. I'm just what? I'm just real. I'm just real. I'm not a pessimist. I'm just being real. There was a lady who her husband passed away. She called the newspaper and she was a realist. She calls the newspaper and they said, I, I, she goes, I'd like to do an obituary. And they said, well, okay, what would you like to say? She goes, I want to put in the newspaper, Frank is dead. So, ma'am, normally our minimum is six words for $25. So what else would you like to say? She so goes, okay, put Frank is dead, Toyota for sale. She wasn't a pessimist. She was just a realist. She was just saying it like it was. You know, and that whole idea of just, you know, sometimes just speaking truth is okay. Uh, Chuck Colson said, um, life isn't like a book. Life is a mess. And our theology is to live life out in the midst of that mess. I love that so much of what we do here is really we're trying to take the truth of Scripture and apply it to what can be the mess of our lives. You know, apply it to just the life that we're living. It's not always picture perfect, but we can take it and apply it to what we're doing. So in the paragraph, there's two different ways. We said we've got Mount Skeptical and we've got Mount Spiritual. There's a path on the skeptical, the pessimist, a path on the spiritual. It may seem odd, but the same person is capable of seeing both mountains in their life. In fact, like I said in my devotion, in one sitting, I can see both. In one experience, we can have the skeptical and we can have the spiritual. We can look to God and we can look at our own heart. We can look at what God says and we can look with our eyes. And we can have this wrestling match. You see, this happens to us all the time. And I've noticed, you know, these things that are happening. He says, I notice these things. I notice that good people are dying young while 
Those that are rich are making poor decisions and they're ungodly. That's this wrestling match that he's referring to. Psalm 73 says this so clearly. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can you relate to that? Do you know a guy or lady who is doing some business practices that are kind of shady, a little unethical, but it makes them a little bit more money? A person who cheats on their hours, a person who cheats on their tests, you know, the person who's not following the rules and they got the better grade while you studied all night and you didn't. You gave it your best effort. And we see that from every stage of life. Already with my young children, I hear these stories come from the schoolyard, and we see these same things in our business practices, our neighbors all around us, and I don't even need to mention the news. We just see this unjustness around us. So we're going to look at this actually in the opposite order of the scripture because I want to end with a positive. So we're going to start on Mount Skeptical, and then we'll end on Mount Spiritual. Some of you live on Mount Skeptical more than you would prefer, you struggle with this idea, and you may even internalize the fact that you just don't ever feel comfortable in a situation. There's always something that you can see the negative in every situation. This passage is for both of us, and that's the good news. Whatever mount you feel like you live on, that this passage is for both of us. Years ago, many years ago, 1400s to be exact, there was a coin that was minted by Spain. I've got a picture of a coin. It's not the coin, but it just might give you a little reference there. And that is the Rock of Gibraltar. You see, they had this coin back in the 1400s. And when Spain minted it, it had the words, Ne plus ultra. Ne plus ultra. Which means, no more beyond this. If you sail beyond, you go beyond the Rock of Gibraltar, there's no more, you will what? What's going to happen to you? You're going to fall off the edge of the earth. There's no more out there. This is it. This is the end. There's no more out there. Well, finally, one brave pioneer went further and actually came back to be followed by others. They ventured out further and further, and then what? They discovered the new world, that there is so much more out there. They remented it, and they just made one little change. They got rid of the nay. They got rid of the no. And now it just says, plus ultra. There is more beyond this. You may have a skeptical viewpoint. And the good news I can share with you is there is more beyond. There is more beyond that. And we all have those internal wrestlings. There's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more than just seeing those that are greedy, those that are cheating, actually winning at times in life. So we're starting with this idea in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, inequity was there. He's actually noticing this substitution. The place where there ought to be a judge sitting who speaks justice. The one who has been put there to stand up for the weak to follow the laws in their case of Leviticus, the laws of Deuteronomy, and to stand up and to be just. And most likely what he's seeing there is he's seeing that they are being bribed. They are doing things in their own best interests. 
He picks that up if we look at chapter 4, just the first two verses. I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressor, there is power. But they, that is the oppressed, they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Out of all the verses in this book, out of honestly all the verses of Scripture, this may be one of the darkest, deepest moments where a person is even questioning if it's better to be alive. This isn't the whole message today, but I just want you to know if you've had those questions, if you've had those thoughts, that you are not alone, that these thoughts and questions are here in our scripture because God welcomes you to bring them to him. And I encourage you not to have those questions and thoughts alone. That if you have those thoughts, know that you're not the only one in this room that has had those thoughts. And you're not the only one that's currently dealing with those issues, but don't do it alone. Find Tina, talk with me, talk with my wife, find a person in the church, and let's do this journey together. You see this humanistic view that life is unfair, that where justice and fairness should sit, the unrighteous are sitting. This Hebrew word here um, literally means the exercise of judicial fairness. When he says this place that should be righteous, he's referring to these, these courts of law that life isn't fair. In fact, I think we've got that, um, yeah, life is unfair, this humanistic view. I found an article that simply, the title says it all, car crash blights girl's life and nobody pays. The story of a drunk driver who was coming home one night in his truck and kills um, a young girl and leaves the mom badly injured. And he gets off because the lawyer found a technicality in the paperwork that was filed. You see, we see this all the time. We see this all the time. And we cry out that there's an unrighteousness, even in our courts, even in our courts, that we see this and we can understand this. And we look around and we look around and saying, how is God in this? How is it that I'm getting pulled over for a ticket going seven over the speed limit, but then people are getting away with accidents like this? And we just see that in life, that evil is rewarded, and at times it feels like good is being punished. And we wonder, like, about this almighty God. If we have this almighty God, how are these things happening? And that's the conversations that you have with a skeptical all the time. If God is all-powerful, then he could destroy evil. If God is all good, then he would destroy evil. But there is still evil is not destroyed. Therefore, says the skeptic, there is no God. And that's the basic argument that they bring, and I will give you an answer to that today, but not yet. Let's look at this viewpoint. The one, if you look at verse 18, it gives us what's called a mechanistic viewpoint, a very mechanical viewpoint. Um, that life is unfair. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them. So he brings God into this, but notices he descends very quickly, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so does the other. Surely all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity, all is meaningless." 
This is this mechanical, mechanistic perspective. That like an animal, but we are just more of a highly developed animal. He sees the similarities in our biology and chemistry. And this is really under the viewpoint of that, that macro evolution perspective. And I'm very careful with the words that I'm using here. This whole idea that just we have just evolved from primates. He has come forth with what he says that all of life I can see and I can test. And where are we today? How can we look at this viewpoint and understand where God our creator is in the midst of this? Have you ever noticed, this is kind of something, I've actually studied the science of this quite a bit. Every single time they come out with a textbook, something amazing happens to the earth. Every time a textbook is printed, the earth gets older. Yeah, back when I was in school, back in the 80s, back in the 80s, the school was, the, the earth was only like 15 billion years old. But all of a sudden I get into college and the earth got like, it was crazy, it got like 10 billion years older. And now all of a sudden it's like they, the earth has gotten even older. You look at the newest textbooks and now the earth is like 115 billion years old. It's amazing the earth gets older with every single textbook. You know, I, I, I haven't noticed it, but that's what they tell me. And the whole perspective is this idea of just needing more and more time. The more time we have, we can try and justify our view on how we see things. Hinduism is also built on the same idea that Solomon is sharing here. That says animals and people are essentially the same. That animals, actually some of them have higher places than we do. This is a true story that happened in India of a moral dilemma. There's a guy and he's driving a bus and it's, it's full of people. And they, they pull up and they go onto a bridge. And this is a true story. A cow had wandered onto the bridge. He had a moral dilemma to make. Should I hit the cow or should I drive off the bridge? And as the report says, you can find online from a local paper, and I hit the translate button and it worked. And I was able to read the whole story that he chose to drive off the bridge, killing many of the people in the bus. But from their perspective, he made the right moral decision because they believe that cows are a higher privilege than humans. And that's the perspective that he was brought up in. That animals have these same souls that we do. They're not just like we are, but it's based upon this viewpoint. I will say this. Animals are absolutely innocent. And animals are exactly God's creation. And the one thing that I do struggle with is why is it, especially here on the Space Coach with, all, with the care of sea turtles, why is the church and Christians not on the forefront of caring for God's creation? And I do believe that that is based in us as well. Based upon this viewpoint, we look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over all the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that God has given us this ability to care for what's around us. The astronomer Sir Frederick Hoyle, he says this, in response to the ability of spontaneous generation happening from a single bacteria, says it's about the same as a probability that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard could assemble a 747 by the parts being laid on the ground. There's a reason why we tell our kids every single week a simple phrase. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. It's because we live in a society that says 
much of what Solomon has, and that the embryo in the womb isn't really a person. That we all are just these evolved primates that have some higher abilities. And it changes our whole perspective on life and the sacredness of it, even the sacredness of our own life. I'm reminded again of Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning. See, no other species are restless like we are. Every species, all the animals, they're content with the life that they have, with the food that they have, with the safe space that they have to lay down at night. They just want to continue to procreate and, and be able to survive. But there's something inside of us that we wake up every single day and say, there's got to be more. We want to help our fellow friends. We want to help other people. We want a better life. We want to build. We want to build big structures. We want to cultivate our landscaping. We want to continue to develop because God's put something inside of us that we are woven with this fabric of eternity, that we're designed in the image of our God, that we have thoughts, that we're able to love, we're able to reason, we're able to come alongside people and see that God is inside of us. But I have proof that the animals don't think that way. Literally, while I was making this message, I turned around to get a picture of my cat. She's not thinking there's got to be more to life than this. She's thinking this is the life. She was well fed. She had water cups everywhere. We gave up on bowls because she always drinks out of her cups. So we just leave cups everywhere that, we, that are her cups and she drinks out of them. You know, she had a warm spot. The sun was coming through. She had a nice, you know, sleep number bed that was adjusting perfectly for her. And her feet are up. She's content. She doesn't ever walk around the house saying, there's got to be more to life than this. I mean, what's the purpose of this? No, a dog will what? A dog will stare at your door for like seven hours, just waiting for you to come home. I love it when they show it. What is the movie, Secret Life of Pets? Hey, what are you doing? I'm going to stare at this door right here because my owner is going to come through this door. When? I have no idea, but I'm going to stare at this door until he comes. And that's it. And they, they love in that contentment, but God's created us for so much more. And God wants that. That's why parents, your kids ask you a thousand questions when they're 11 years old, 10 years old, 9 years old, right? They have all these questions, you know, at all these different ages or different questions because they were designed with eternity in mind. They were designed by a creator. They were designed, we were designed in God's image that we are made on purpose and for a purpose. This idea of immortality has been in existence all through humankind. You go back to the um, Babylonians, uh, the ancient Chinese, every culture, this idea of immortality. Because God's designed us with a common thread and a common story. You go to Mount Skeptical and you find the pessimistic view as our third kind of peak on Mount Skeptical. Verse 21 says, Who knows? Who knows the spirits of son of men? which go upward in the spirit of the animal that goes down to the earth. A better rendition, I think, may say this. Who knows which goes up and which goes down? How do you know that the human spirit goes up to the presence of God while the animal simply just goes down back into the earth? He continues, So I perceive nothing is better that a man should rejoice in his own works, that his heritage for who can bring him to see 
what will happen after him. Here's what he's saying. How do we know this difference? How do we know this difference between me and animals? And by the way, those verses right there are like the most commonly quoted verses by agnostic and atheists. If you didn't know it, atheists do have life verses, and that's it. It's not a very hopeful verse, but they have their life verse. And that's kind of what it is. They would, they would argue that this, how can you have this belief when even your own Bible makes this statement? And that's where I continue. I can't do a teaching on Ecclesiastes without warning you that, yes, this is the Word of God. Yes, this is the inherent Word of God. Yes, this is the inspired Word of God. But these are Solomon's um, thoughts, his journal that he is sharing with us. We are observing these verses, not necessarily teaching these verses directly to our hearts. Yes, it's inspired, but here's Solomon's struggle. He's questioning the basic tenets that he was brought in, brought up with. He's questioning what he had been taught. But this agnostic viewpoint that life is pointless. And by the way, does anybody know what the Greek for agnostic actually means? If you actually go and you dig into the word, it means without knowledge. I just don't know. I just don't know. And that's what an agnostic says. There's got to be more to life than this, but I just don't know what it all means. Where an atheist would actually say there is no God, that we're simply just science at work, and we all are just a process of chance. You see, if you, the Latin equivalent of agnostic is a little bit different than the Greek. It actually gets translated as ignoramus which I've learned from Cracker Barrel is not good. You see, it's true that agnostics should never rest in their I don't knows. A true agnostic would keep on pursuing because I know there's more to life than this. If you have friends that are on this Mount Skeptical and they're saying, you know what, I don't know if I believe in Jesus, just encourage them to continue to pursue, continue to ask questions, continue to come alongside them because I know that I've been on that journey, and at the end of that journey, the end of that whatever trail hike that is, is one thing, and that's the truth of Jesus Christ and his love that is for us. We do not need to be afraid of any questions that people ask us. Tim Hawkins is a great um, Christian comedian. He kind of gave a helpful illustration to try and understand these different perspectives, and he talks about a Christian baseball player so, Dom, you played a lot of baseball, been around a lot of baseball. What do, what do Christians do when they hit a home run? Yeah, they, they, they point, and then they let Jesus know. And, and so if we follow that, and I ask the question of, Dom, what would a Satan worshiper do if they hit a home run? You have never seen that one? They don't go like, that doesn't work? All right, what would an atheist do if they hit a home run? Yep, that's what I thought too. Just point to themselves like, I did it, nobody else. It's my name on the jersey, right? It's just me. But what would an agnostic do if they hit a home run? Yeah, I think they would just hit the home run and be like, what's the point, you know? And just sit down or something, you know? So we bring in these different viewpoints. But what is it that God wants to teach us from this? You see, I know that there are professed believers, people that are here hearing this message, and my challenge to you is, are you living like a believer? Are you living like an agnostic? And I think there's a lot of Christians that are living like an agnostic. That you believe in the Bible, you read the Bible, you pray, you come to church, you do all the things that we're told to do in the, in the faith, but you're living your life as an agnostic. 
Because if you truly believed that you knew the answer, you knew what everybody needed, you knew the cure to sin, I don't think we would go a day without telling somebody about Jesus. We certainly wouldn't go the week of just being, you know, niceties with other people, but we would actually be going out and telling people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that we can be connected with him for all of eternity, that your sins can be forgiven. It would want to come out of every single part of your fiber, that Ecclesiastes 3.11, that word beautiful, means knit together, put together. God put us together for eternity, and it would be busting out of every single part of us. You see, that's what I believe that God would do for us, because we have a God that is so good. As we look at the view from Mount Spiritual, as we close, in verse 12, he doesn't say this like life is a guess. He says life is what? Life is a gift. He says, I know that nothing, and notice he says the words, I know. He has confidence in this. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that the very, uh, that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all his labor, for it is the gift of God. You see, life is a gift we receive from him. How many joyful Christians do we know that just every single day we see that Christ is radiating through their life? When you see those people, you want to go be with those people. You've got to put God into our thinking. We've got to put God into our lives. There was a woman in San Francisco. Uh, her house was taken down by an earthquake. The reporters came, and she was praising God and worshiping in front of her house that had fallen down. They said, what are you doing? She goes, I'm praising God. Why? Your house was destroyed. Yeah, you see how powerful my God is? One I can actually show you a picture of is Chandler Moore. Um, he took a picture of his house that was burning down. I'll post this so you guys can read this later. It says, 4 a.m. was supposed to um, be in my apartment. Just moved in last week. This morning I was scheduled to fly out of town. And basically the story comes down to um, his house burned down. But I'm good. We will share what God is doing in the seasons at a later time. Point is, I'm alive. Lost about 98% of my material things. And it's frustrating, but I have life, and the Lord is so kind. You see, I love that. He actually goes to a friend's house, gets on the piano, and records 12 minutes of just doing worship. Because at that point, he knew that he was created for eternity, and all this stuff here on earth was not going to change his perspective. If you're taking notes, write this down. You can choose to count your griefs in life, or you can choose to count your gifts. Which viewpoint are you going to stand from? Mount skeptical? Life is a big guess? Are you going to see things from Mount spiritual, that life is a gift from God? Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2 reminds us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. You see, it's been given this gift, this gift that God has given us of life. When we're on Mount Spiritual, the second perspective is that life is a test. He says that here. He says God tests them. He recognizes that, that God is a test, that God's actions are permanent. They are complete. They are thorough. 
And he says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so that man may fear. You see, do we fear God in our lives? Do we fear God with the choices that we're making? And not this like Wizard of Oz fear, where he's the man behind the curtain who's just, we're afraid to go be in his presence. But no, knowing that someday scripture tells us that we'll be held account for the decisions that we make. The final thing is life has a grade card. We will report to him. We do have a grade card that's coming. He says, that which has already been, what is to be already been, and God requires an account of what is past. You see, we look at this view from the top. Where are you living today? Are we counting our griefs? Or are we counting our gifts? Or what God has given us? As the worship team's coming up, I just want to give us a chance to sing this song that we've sung many times before, So Will I. And really just internalize this message. To recognize how beautiful our creator is. To recognize the gifts that God has given us the, the gift of taking all of our failures and wiping them away.